Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, bringing to you the 2017 East End Conference that took place over the weekend of the 5th and 6th of August at the Water Poet in Fullgate Street and at the Curzon Cinema in Allgate in the East End of London, England. The next speaker we are pleased to present is the keynote speaker for the event, Charlotte Mallinson, with a talk entitled, In the Name of Jack. Victimhood and the Representations of the Whitechapel Murders. Ms. Mallinson is a PhD researcher and lecturer at the University of Huddersfield, whose present doctoral work is analyzing how the Whitechapel murder victims have been represented in books, heritage tourism, film, television, and the news media. The presentation you are about to hear took place at the Curzon Allgate in conjunction with the August meeting of the Whitechapel Society. So you'll be hearing Sue Perry reading the parish notices before turning it over to the Master of Ceremonies, Philip Hutchinson, introducing Charlotte Mallinson. Welcome back and good evening to others, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Curzon Old Gate for the Whitechapel Society. This is weird. The acoustics sound really weird here. Yes, they do. Does it sound weird anyway? Right. (laughs) <laughs> my stupid voice, that's what it is. So for the Whitechapel Society members who are at the conference uh, today, uh, welcome. You. <laughs> so so the, the Curzon All Gate, it's uh, only open the start of this year and I've seen loads of films here already. It's great, isn't it great? I love it here. It's great. Big comfy seats, get a drink from the bar, watch an art house film, realise ten minutes in, it's not as good as you thought it was going to be. Stop watching the subtitles, fall asleep, have a nice kick, go off and do it all. <laughs> so, uh, yes, here we are and uh, ready for this evening's talk. Now, obviously, because tonight is shared with the Whitechapel Society, there will still be uh, parish notices. And before we go any further, I'm going to hand over to Sue Parry to give those. Evening, Sue. Hi, Philip. Hi everybody, I'll keep this brief. Um, First of all, I think what we must do is congratulate the new Mrs. Davis. The lovely Lindsay was married last weekend to daughter George uh, in North Wales. So uh, congratulations Lindsay and George uh, for a long and happy marriage. A couple of things. Books for sale down here uh, from Mango Books. If you want any uh, books, uh, see Adam. But there are two I want to bring your attention to. Uh, That's uh, Ripperland. Lovely, lovely book. Andrew Firth has just brought this out. It's a real sort of coffee table job, this. The the, the, uh, photographs in here are just superb. The presentation is absolutely lovely. So that's on sale down here. And we also have uh, Amanda Harvey Percy's latest book. Uh, she's a regular contributor to the Whitechapel Society Journal. Uh, and Amanda's book is also for sale down here. Uh, Jack and the Old Jewry, uh, the City of London Policeman Who Hunted the Ripper. So that is also for sale. So again, uh, see Adam. Um, I just wanted to bring your attention to uh, our Christmas meeting. I know Christmas seems a long way off. Uh, that's going to be on the 2nd of December, but uh, we've got a very special guest coming to that meeting. None other than, and you've seen your leaflets, but none other than Giles Brandreth. Um, and many of you will, will, will know of Giles. Uh, he's a writer, broadcaster, former MP, uh, Lord Commissioner of the Treasury. He's now Chancellor of the University of Chester. Uh, Chester and one of Britain's most sought-after award ceremony hosts and after-dinner speakers. Uh, A veteran of QI, and have I got news for you, uh, and a reporter on The One Show, and a regular on Just Minute. Uh, He's written many books, uh, including the Oscar Wilde murder mysteries and the number one bestseller, well, according to Giles, it's the number one bestseller, The Second Secrets of Happiness. Uh, But the reason we've got him as our guest speaker in December is that he has brought out a book, uh, a novel about Jack the Ripper. Um, And it's had absolutely rave reviews. The books will be on sale uh, and Giles will sign them in December. 
and Giles is related, and uh, Ruby will explain the relationship better than I, uh, but Giles is related to G.R. Sims, the, the first journalist who <coughs> said that he knew who Jack the Ripper was. Uh, and Giles has had access to some of his uh, forefathers, papers, so his talk should be absolutely fascinating. There will be a buffet on that night, which is absolutely free to members, uh, and on that night we would ask guests if they would pay £10. As usual, that meeting will be at the Chamberlain Hotel, so a really good evening. Um, I think that's it. No, one more. Yeah, uh, raffle. If you haven't bought your raffle tickets, make sure that you get them. There's some fantastic prizes there including the original uh, sign to Miller's Court. Where did you get that? <laughs> Fantastic. Great. Thanks very much, and I'll hand you back to Philip. Thank you, sir. I should point out as well, for those who don't have them yet, uh, Andrew's book is £25 and worth every penny of that. And uh, Amanda's book is usually 20 but this weekend she's selling the 25% off at, at 15 So now will be your chance to get hold of those. So, on to this evening's speaker. I'd usually make light of all these things, but uh, the subject matter here is, is something for us all to have a pretty good hard look at ourselves and re-evaluate re uh, the way that we, we treat things, our interests, our motivations and our focus. Um, the lives of the victims of the Ripper were, were generally glossed over until Neil Sheldon did a great deal of work about 10 years ago tracing the surviving families of the Ripper victims and uh, writing about them and the women in question <laughs> rather than this nefarious dark individual of which we know nothing about that people have been focusing on for, for so many decades. Uh, Charlotte Mallinson is a name that would be known to a great deal of, of people in, in Ripper Fields, but uh, I have a feeling that's going to change. Uh, she wrote an article that was in the, in the papers uh, three years ago uh, talking about how sex workers were being exploited and uh, the subject matter was always focusing on the killer responsible for the Whitechapel murders, never, never his victims and it was time to, to readdress that. She's a PhD researcher and lecturer at the University of Huddersfield. I met her for the first time this evening. Hello, Charlotte. Um, and, and indeed, certainly we've, we've found over the last decade that there's, there's several cases we can think about uh, that have led down very, no pun intended, very dark alleyways uh, where people have been motivated to, <coughs> to commit their own crimes where they claim they're inspired by the Ripper. Uh, for example, the crossbow, the so self-titled crossbow killer in Bradford, and indeed we did have a case, some of you may recall, in the East End, the best part of ten years ago, when a man had modelled himself on the Ripper and actually uh, managed to, to kill two women, uh, claiming he was inspired by the Ripper murders, one of whom actually used to work Commercial Street and used to say hello to my groups once upon a time, uh, and he managed to kill two before he was caught <coughs> by the police claiming they're inspired by the Ripper murders. Undoubtedly, some of this is due to the way in, in which Ripperology itself is marketed. And of course, a great example recently is the uh, the Ripper Museum, whatever your opinion may be on that. I think a great deal of people would say it's, it's not handled the subject matter in the best way possible. So to uh, speak to us about how uh, the case should be reassessed in regards to how the victims of the Ripper murders are treated, and uh, how that's been dealt with, certainly over modern history. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce to you Charlotte Mallinson. Right, um, gosh, yes. Um, I will start by thanking everyone for inviting me to um, speak this evening. I understand it's quite a bit of a departure from what kind of material that's usually discussed. I really appreciate just having this voice this evening. So in a nutshell, the paper I'm going to be giving this evening will consult a variety of primary sources, maybe drawn from popular culture, to explore the ways in which Jack has been historically portrayed and celebrated as an icon of sex, crime and violence. The paper will explore the relationship between Jack's mythical immortal status and how the intersecting of prejudices associated with sex work have affected the overall dynamics in this historiography. It will argue that by and large constructions of Jack as a revered figure and a codependent relationship on the construction of denigrated identities for the women he killed. 
as even in some quarters today, in the strictest sense, Jack the Ripper did not kill women. His only crime was he butchered, rattled, drinks, sodden East End prostitutes. Some of you may be familiar with this citation and know that it's not a historic one. It was actually taken from the London Walks web literature this week. Indeed, it is not an isolated example of denigrated of the women killed in Whitechapel. Sadly, you will see expressions of homophobia aimed towards these women and others dotted throughout this paper. The definition assumed here was given by a sex worker, Thierry Schehofer, who observed that homophobia is the hate or fear of sex workers. It embraces paternalistic, uh, sorry, paternalistic attitudes that deem them a public nuisance, spreaders of disease, offenders against decency, unskilled victims who don't know what's good to them. And adding that in its most violent manifestations, homophobia does kill. Speaking of definitions, I will reiterate the definition of Jack that I have assumed for the paper this evening, and that has come from Deborah Cameron. She rendered Jack the Ripper to be the complicated, discursive construct who arose from the Whitechapel murders and is not the person or people that committed murder in the Victorian East End. From all of this, I will be examining some horrifying consequences which can arise when the narrative of murder downplays the significance of victims and celebrates killers. However, I'm going to add that this paper will in no way be sanitised, being this murder, sexual mutilation, sex work are all at the heart of this history. Um, the language I use here, although guarding against gratuity, will be unapologetically <coughs> reflective. At times, this is not going to be pleasant. Um, I'm going to cut out the next bit because I know we're sort of short for time, but essentially saying that I'm going to start with conceptual material rather than anything empirical. So the first 10 minutes are just going to be a conceptual discussion. So here we are, and although the conversation we are having this evening is about Jack the Ripper and the appalling acts of violence which has now become a figurehead, we are immediately going to be drawn away from the familiarity of the latter Victorian era, away from Polly, away from Annie, away from Elizabeth, Catherine and Mary Jane, and away from the East End to explore the 21st century relationship between culture and violence. It must be said that historically murder has captured the social cultural imagination. Historically, both factual and in fiction, the topic has enticed and horrified. Furthermore, in our capitalist society, it is little wonder that Mark Furman added to the debates by suggesting, considering the power of today's mass media, publishing industries, entertainment histories and memorabilia markets, you cannot tabulate the colossal earnings of a single perfect murder one that has everything. Indeed, here with all the history, mystery and hard buckling, there is little question that the Whitechapel murders by many are perceived to be just that. Peter Morell argues that it is the paradoxical and double-edged um, purpose of murder which provokes bystanders' appeal. He claims that in a society, murder is both functional and dysfunctional. It annihilates and undermines the health and well-being of some, yet enhances the personal social well-being of others. Um, it has absorbers and it abhorses. It is malady, it is therapy. In short, he adds, killing is thrilling. Therefore, it's quite understandable that unwell within the realms of normality, that here in the 21st century, we are interested in the topic on multiple levels. I think it must be worth noting at this stage that Morel does state that murder can enhance the social well-being of some. This is something we might consider later on. Um, however, for now, one must only think about the fan base of many of today's imprisoned killers who are regularly sent gifts and even marriage proposals of evidence of the dility of this claim. However, I would argue that a key component in this fascination of murder is the universality of the topic. The World Health Organization 2002's report on violence and health noted that violence has probably always been part of the human experience. Its impact can be seen in various forms in all parts of the world. They added that each year more than a million people use their lives because of it. And whilst there is undoubted credence to all of this, Nelson Mandela in the foreword of the report reminded us that we, all of us, have the power to challenge this. He postulated that violence is everyone's problem. No country, no city, no community is immune, but neither are we powerless against it. In this, Nelson Mandela asserted that violence can happen to anyone at any time, being it is something that which can pervade all social spaces. Yet he simultaneously noted that this is also something that can respond to preventative interventions. 
violence thrives, he added, in the absence of democracy and in the lack of respect for human rights. And this is a key point that I want us to consider. Um, it also appears in the lack of good governance. Many who live with violence day in, day out, assume that it's an intrinsic part of the human condition, but this is not so. Violence is stated can be prevented. Violent cultures can be turned around. Around the world, we have shining examples of how violence has been countered. Governments, communities, individuals can make a difference. From this, we can ascertain that historically and globally, sorry, historically and globally, violence is and has been a product of society, politics and culture on mass and individual levels. However, this is the very pivot on which all of this can be flipped, as we, as individuals and contributors to culture and politics, have the freedom not only not to commit violence, we have the freedom to choose how it is interpreted. The need to re-examine our own exceptions of violence, even within fit, even fatal violence, as something which is an accepted part of the human condition, appears to be more and more becoming to the fore of global thinking. As such, the World Health Organization in 2014 followed up their initial report, this time the report's sole focus on prevention goals. Some of its targets included having all violent-related death everywhere and ending violence against children and eliminating all forms of violence and girls, against women and girls by the year 2030. Whilst it is acknowledged the complexities in action in such goals, it's simultaneously noted that 30% of all countries are already attempting to prevent child sexual abuse by introducing social and cultural norm-changing programmes. Similarly, 50% of all countries are tackling intimate abuse of women and 49% are focusing on the prevention of sexual assault with the same programmes based entirely on changing and challenging accepted cultural thought. While this may appear simplistic, it also illustrates the importance of fracturing cultural assumptions to curtail violence. This is something of life-changing importance for many, especially if you are a member of a community whom Mandela was referring to as being subjected to violence day in and day out. Those who now assume that violence is an intrinsic part of the human condition. One such community are sex workers. However, I must add at this stage that there is far more to being a sex worker than victimhood and violence. So, nevertheless, in May 2016, uh, saw the release of Amnesty International's state policy on the obligation to respect, protect and fulfil human rights for sex workers. Human rights campaigners and academics underpin the policy in recognition of the high rates of human rights abuses experienced globally and individually by those who engage in sex work, a term that Amnesty International used only in regard to sexual exchanges between adults, as by and large the industry is constructed by those whom through a multitude of varied circumstances and choices, have opted through their own agency to provide transactional sexual services. The report noted that the marginalisation of sex workers can be based on gender and other aspects of their identity and status, adding that they frequently encounter censor, <coughs> judgment and blame for being seen to transgress social or sexual norms and or gender stereotypes based on their participation in the sex industry. Crucially, this denotes that sex workers are identified as having an intersection of real or imagined deviant identities. If we think back again to the phrase, rattled, drink-sodden, East End prostitutes, we've got an example of that um, deviant identity. Uh, pivotally, according to Timo McNannan, this means that those subjected to the multiple deviant identities, such as sex workers, are frequently dishonorably rendered as members of being outgroups. Um, as such, sex workers, sorry, um, and their humanity is rebuked. However, this is not a new phenomenon. Um, Gordon Ratay-Taylor commented that prostitutes to the Victorians were what witches were to the medievals. James Green poignantly illustrated, sorry, James Greenwood poignantly illustrated this in 1869 when he noted, women working prostitution in London were one of the city's seven curses. Vile to themselves, conscienceless wretches who wallow in vice and mire and strong liquor, slaves who boast of neither soul nor body, whom belong to the devil in nothing but human form. With Andrew Fay Courier adding in 1891, those who embarked in such activities were agents of unmitigated evil. 
Hence, even before the Whitechapel murders, women providing sexual services were given a complex, a complex set of even imagined identities. Susan Straga et al. simply advocated that women who work have worked in or persist working in on-street sex work have been historically characterised as venomous. Elements of this can be seen in Donald McCormick's The Identity of Jack the Ripper, where he paints this chair at the scene of Whitechapel in 1888. The lowest class of prostitutes descended into the taverns by the hordes, bent upon finding sufficiently fiddled men, uh, sufficiently filled men, um, prepared to overlook their drab and sluttish appearance and fall into their scraggy and greedy arms. This clearly gives the impression that sex workers of the era en masse leached onto unsuspecting drunkards intent on sucking their wallets dry. Disconcertingly, Kipler and Rushlow observed that construction of outgroups as parasites and pests capable of swarming and spreading disease are the most common considered non-human metaphors. They expand upon this theme by explaining that the process of extreme dehumanisation is a psychological one made by individuals or groups to the end that other individuals or groups will be denied human qualities or are believed to be less than human. He adds that in terms of intergroup relations, dehumanisation excuses aggression towards members of outgroups and it scaffolds strategies of extermination. Indeed, there is little escape from within ripological texts, which constant refer to the 80,000 approximate prostitutes who swamp the streets of London during the period. Nor is the word syphilitic ever too far from the grand narrative of the murders. Moreover, Jack's purported contracting of this disease has been cited as the motive for the murder on more than one occasion. In this, it can be seen that frequent frequently that the grand narrative of the murders echoes perfectly a homophobic construction of Victorian sex workers as being venomous, contagious community who were without humanity, parasitic and worthless. Whether in the past or in the here and now, Levi Minzy and Shields note the result of these negative attitudes towards prostitution and those who engage in it means that they are often seen as deserving of what they get, abused and mistreated. Further arguing, that, it is, that there is no harm done when they are hurt or killed. Dennis Michaels in Jack the Ripper, The Murders and the Movies, pushed this ethos to a warped logical conclusion by overtly surmising that the women killed in Whitechapel were consensual victims. Unsurprisingly, I can show you that there is no evidence to suggest that the women killed in Whitechapel had consented to be virtually decapitated and had their vaginas and other reproductive organs slashed away. The act itself, which one that psychologically connotes a loathing of female sexuality. Moreover, the women killed in Whitechapel can rather conversely be to can be seen to be engaging in multiple survival approaches. The evidence is clear, they did want to live. Their sex work, petty theft, and their purported alcoholism, or this can be entirely deconstructed, <coughs> were all um, demonstrations of survival and coping strategies. Leslie Marion, in the pen, Women's Penny Paper, dated Saturday, March the 16th, 1890, wrote that the women killed in Whitechapel had been selling their bodies for bread. Hence for them, in a society where it was prostitution or starvation, life or death, they chose life, and very much harm was done when this was mercilessly taken away from them. Amnesty International state that this is not unusual for crimes against sex workers to go unreported, underinvestigated and or underpunished, therefore offering perpetrated impunity. And let's be honest here, Jack's appeal, construction and infamy, infamy are based solely on the fact that he is a horse layer that has revelled in impunity. The fact of the matter is, there's never been any blood on Jack's hands. Indeed, there were never any hands to have blood on. Nevertheless, the history literally typifies Amnesty International's claim. Where still, excuse me, and again echoed in the history, is the observation made by Thierry Shores there, which recorded that when female sex workers are attacked, they are often subjected to a more, sorry, often subjected to more prejudice than the men who attack them. A predilection which, according to Straga Evertal, is deeply rooted in Anglo-American history. 
Echoes of this inflection were demonstrated on October 5th, 1888, following journalist T.J. Bullings' transcription of the repermissive address to Chief Constable Aldous Fred Frederick Williamson, claiming to be from Jack. The letter denies any involvement in the murder of a woman who was found as a decomposed truck in a white chapel, uh, sorry, Whitehall Hall. It answered that the body was, if the, if the body was that of an honest woman, I, Jack, will hunt down and destroy the murderer. However it counted, if she was a whore, God will bless the hand that slew her, and divine power will help me protect as I continue my grand work. Whilst it is true that the authenticity of the authorship of these missives remains a critically contested feature of this historic saga, the documents, as noted by Stuart P. Evans and Keith Skinner, are valuable sources. They claim that the historical importance lies in their huge social relevance, as they reveal not only the thinking of the time, but also the profound effect that the murders had on some individuals and on Victorian newspapers. However, from reading this example, the message is unmistakable. Butchery of an honest woman is conceived to be testable, a, test, a detestable crime worthy of punishment by death, whereas the slaying of whores is considered to be grand work. This was further demonstrated by Canon Samuel Bow. Canon Samuel Barnett, in a letter addressed to the Times dated 16th of November 1888. Arguably here, Barnett did not represent the, opinion, the opinions of an entire society, but nor does it appear that his predilections were either radical or too divergent. He states, I am appalled by, I am appalled more by the disorderly and depraved lives of our neighbours than I am the actual murderer. The acts of a madman are not matters for horror. What makes Barnett's comments so stark is that his letter appeared in the same copy of the Times which detailed the post-mortem reports of Mary Kelly, which detailed in absolute the injuries which were inflicted upon her. From this it can be suggested that the killings themselves could sorry, that the killings themselves could be perceived in some circles as being a victim, a victory of a ruinous good of over a, a formidable evil. Hence, I conclude that during the eras of the murder, slain hearts was not always perceived to be a negative act, nor the killer a bad person. Sadly, however, that perce perception did not remain in the past. Deborah Cameron and Elizabeth Fraser state that all persistent features of Ripper killings from Jack the Ripper onwards is that there is always an argument available to, available to the effect that a prostitute killer is not a sex beast, but someone who believes that he's doing world a favour by being down on whores. Similarly, Mike Pickering, Jane Littlewood, Tony Walter crudely conclude that heroes kill whores. It is at this point we leap back at least for a moment to the 21st century and to a woman named Linuta Hayback, a 28-year-old from Skegness, who, like the women murdered in Whitechapel circa 1888, also worked in the sex industry. Their killer, 29-year-old Casey Scott, claimed to be obsessed with the mythic Victorian killer and was known to have Google searched the Whitechapel atrocities at the time of committing his own crimes. Other than ending the life of Lenuta, Macabre Casey paid the ultimate homage to his hero by stabbing the victim twice in the neck, both times drawing the knife across her throat. He further honoured and emulated the 19th century mythical killer by inflicting degrading abdominal post-mortem mutilations on her and by engraving the word Jack into her stomach. It is interesting to note that the son, dated the 24th of January 2017, uh, recorded Scott's trial and sentencing. The article covering the story headlined Jack the Ripper and referred to him twice more before naming Lenuta herself. In truth, I do only expect misogyny and sensationalism from this mucky rag. However, what troubles me is that during January, when the, stories ran its, it, when the story ran, its circulation was at one and three quarter million, up at 3.5% on the previous month's sales, making it the highest selling daily newspaper of the UK in that cycle. Thus, the highest percent of all UK newspaper readers were introduced to the unsettling notion that Jack the Ripper, a mythical creation who took, uh, took prominence over a young woman whose murder the story was actually detailing. Lenuta's death, sorry, Lenuta's death did not simply mark the end of her own young life. It also stands as yet another undeniable manifestation of what Jane Computy identified as being Ripper repetitions in her 1987 feminist critique of sexual murder, the age of sex crime. 
a factor that led her to conclude three years later that Jack the Ripper had become the founding father of serial killers. Further arguing that Jack had become a role model for subsequent killers, including the Boston Strangler, the Son of Sam, the Yorkshire Ripper and the Green River Killer. Naturally, without testimony from the killers themselves, we cannot know to what degree this is true, or even if it is. But we do know, however, that internationally, from the time of the Whitechapel murders, news media has frequently connected sub subsequent acts of violence with crimes associated with Jack. On the 11th of March, 1890, the Portsmouth Evening News published the headline, Fiendish Crimes, Imitating Jack the Ripper, detailing the story of a Canadian murder of a Mrs. Dubois, her six-month-old baby, and two older children by, the husband and, uh, by her husband and the children's father, Richard. The story noted that the killer severed his wife's head and cut off both her breasts and then placed them next to the corpse. Furthermore, the article observed that the children had endured virtual decapitations and had been, been disemboweled in the same awful manner as adopted by the Whitechapel murderer. In 1895, William Grant ferociously wounded Alice Graham in Liverpool by seriously stabbing her in the abdomen in a strange resemblance to the crimes of Jack the Ripper. In Hull, 1900, <coughs> a miscreant stabbed five women in the abdomen in a series of Jack the Ripper-type crimes. In 1911, we had a Negro Jack the Ripper who for eight weeks in succession had murdered and mutilated half-caste women on the streets of Atlanta, Georgia. The Daily Mail, dated 8th of February 1930, informed us that the Ripper had returned, this time to Dusseldorf. Into the 1940s and 1950s, we've got 52-year-old <coughs> Albert Edward Matheson who smashed in the skull and cut in half his 15-year-old homosexual lover, Gordon Lockwood. It was a crime so revolting that Judge Goddard, who had proceeded over the trial, noted that the attack echoed the acts of the maniac Jack the Ripper. This trend continued right into the, through the 20th century and into the 21st centuries. There is no denying the comparative frenzy which hit the national media during the 70s and the crimes of Peter Sutcliffe the Yorkshire Ripper, and into the noughties of the crimes of Steve Wright, initially dubbed the Ipswich Ripper, then the Suffolk Strangler. Here we can see that we have a continuum of crimes which have been associated with Jack via news media or other third-party analyses. In the main, this appears to be based on the comparisons of MO, level of ferocity or victim type, rather than being actual emulations. In this we can see reflections of what Mark, Mark Seltzer argued in his provocative 1998 publication, Serial Killers, Life and Death in America's Womb Culture, and that is that Jack, the, the Jack the Ripper case has become the projective surface for all kinds of stories. In this arena, Jack can literally be anyone who violently injures others or takes lives. This to me, is particularly insidious, given that this is the element which significantly contributes to an indecadal in reinventing and repurposing of Jack. It keeps him relevant in ways in which ripological investigations simply cannot do. The result of which, as Lisa Downing postulates, is that Jack the Rip has become a cultural figure of folklore through which all contemporary serial killers are understood. This is vital to consider as there is not a single real characteristic of Jack. Accordingly, every component of every narrative or representation which has ever been linked to the character of Jack is a product of someone's imagination, but one which significantly draws from and contributes to the dominant understandings of the serial killer. It is therefore the very notion that Jack is a social construct who can seamlessly morph through epochs representing killers of all national nationalities, figureheading child killers, those who have committed fatal domestic violence and those who have slayed their 15-year-old homosexual lovers and so on and so forth, which maintains Jack's murderous ideals. Arguably, arguably, it is because of this that he has now become the mythic master criminal and according to Dirk Gibson, is both the serial killer superstar of all time and the king of all killers. I just want to talk about this slide for a minute. This is how BBC recorded the crimes of Derek Brown. This is how they portrayed Derek. And on the same news article, gives both the victims a rap sheet. In the case of Yao, they actually talk about her husband's crimes and not her own. 
And in the case of Bonnie, they speak that she gave us an actual month to be, to be cared for. Now, to me, that's a noble act. If you have an addiction and you're ill, and you have to submit your child to someone else's care, that is not something that should be berated. That shouldn't simply be admired for doing the right thing by that child. Nevertheless, you wouldn't really know who was the victim and who was the murderer just by looking at these three um, images. However, there is another type of crime associated with Jack, and this is the, the result of direct emulations. 19th century Parisian criminologist Jean-Gabriel Didard concluded that media hysteria enshrouded the murders at the time instigated an almost immediate and unprecedented international reaction, one which he deemed to be the suggestion effect, the embryonic phase of the phenomenon now called copycat crime. The result of which, according to Lauren Coleman <coughs> in her 2004 publication, Copycat Effect and How the Media and Popular Culture Trigger Mayhem in Tomorrow's Headlines, is that the killings spawned a, sorry, the killings spawned a wave of rape murders. Victims of these crimes are people I refer to in my article as being extended victims. However, I've reconsidered my position here and I'd like to suggest that this group may be the truest victims of Jack, given that they have all been directly implicated sorry, as be, has, he has been directly implicated as an inspiration by those who committed the actual act. However, my PhD is a work in progress, so this is something I'm kind of tying with myself at the minute. A typical example of this emulation, um, emulative nature of the crimes were depicted in Portsmouth Evening News, Saturday, March the 8th, 1890, under the headline which read, Murder and Mutilation in Moscow, Killer Emulates Jack the Ripper. The story provided was a detailed um, provided details of the horrific find of a woman's severed head in the Russian capital. Nearby, a sack of mutilated body parts were also found. In another replicated element of the crime, that sack contained a note. It read, "This is the first of our exploits. We plan to do, outdo Jack the Ripper." Therefore, here we can see that Jack was not um, not only an overt inspiration for these actions. He, came, he became perceived as a competitor in some kind of macabre competition. Sadly, this trend did not abate. In 1975, Susan Brown Miller quoted Noel Anand to suggest that Jack the Ripper had become a prototype, an inspiration for numerous real-life heroes of crime. The monster of Florence was responsible for 16 Jack the Ripper-type lust murders, beginning with the killing of Antonia Lobanco and Barbara Lockie in 1968 and continued until 1985. The, eventually, the killer would establish an almost exact signature wound into the Whitechapel murderer. These included ritualistic mutilations and removal of sexual organs. John Wayne Gacy constructed his own links with Jack. Gacy killed 33 teenage boys and young men between 1972 and 1978, and even on death row, he protested his innocence. He said he blamed the murders on his alter ego, whom he named Jack the Other Guy. Further still, two years after Brown Mill's assertion was made, the body of 16-year-old Lynn Siddons was found with 14 stab wounds up to four inches deep and 20 more perforations were made with a knife. An unnamed 15-year-old boy from Nottingham pleaded not guilty to her murder, however admitted to stabbing her like Jack the Ripper, a bloke he'd seen in a film and in a book he'd seen with pictures. Yet Brown Miller's observation continues to be frighteningly relevant decades later. Other than the appalling murder of Linuta, who we discussed earlier, this was highly evident in the autumn of 2007 when Derek Brown lured killed and dismembered Zhao Mei Gao and Bonnie Barrett, two women who the BBC on the 8th of October 2008 noted both lived and plied their trades on the streets of Whitechapel in West London, oh, sorry, in East London. The police reported Brown's desire to be famous had been motivated, uh, oh, sorry, had motivated a move from Preston to the locale where he stopped the streets of Whitechapel and killed sex workers to forge links of notoriety with Jack the Ripper. This is actually in his witness statement. Further still, Detective Chief Inspector Mark Hamaya noted that Brown selected these particular women to kill as he believed no one would care about their deaths. Arguably, Brown had sourced this truth from a multitude of strands which had worsed their way through society, history and culture. A truth which has even permeated the law enforcement in charge of protecting such women. 
1978, a statement was made by Superintendent Jim Hobson of West Yorkshire Police in relation to the Yorkshire <laughs> investigations. He said, he, the killer, has made it quite clear he hates prostitutes, but many of us do. Even more disturbingly was a police statement given to the press in Sacramento in 1990, after a five-year spate of serial killings in the locale, which up to that point had left 39 women raped, brutalised and murdered. In an appeal for information and on camera, the investigating officer stated that we, the police, are treating these crimes as a misdemeanour murder. They're often biker women and hookers. Sometimes we actually refer to these killings as NHIs, adding that that stands for no humans involved. For a member of the law enforcement to render any rape murder as a misdemeanour is a notion incredibly difficult to conceive under any circumstance. However, when it is factored in that he was referring to, such a, referring to such a high number of murdered women, who he then proceeded to describe as not human, is almost too incredulous to, to react to. Yet all of this is part of a culture which seems resistant to change. And as I close tonight's lecture, it's at this point I would like us to consider, reconsider, or reframe a point raised by Robin O'Dell in the Whitechapel Society's Jack the Ripper, The Terrible Legacy, in discussing the crimes of infamous murder victims. He states, perhaps it is the fate of murder victims to be forgotten while their perpetrators achieve notoriety and fame. Personally, for a host of all kinds of reasons I've listed tonight, I truly do not believe that this is a matter of fate, nor do I think it's an issue which should be so readily accepted. Moreover, I think it far more befitting a question to raise what is the true cost of undermining the experience of murder victims while creating a culture of notoriety and fame for perpetrators? In conclusion, <laughs> means I've almost survived myself. We have seen that killing in the name of Jack takes multiple forms. Primarily, it takes the form <coughs> in discussions of murders of the murders of Polly and Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, Mary Jane Kelly and all the other women that he did not kill during Whitechapel atrocities of circa 1888. Yet since the latter Victorian period, killing in the name of Jack has also been a vicarious process of third party analyses based uh, mainly on MO and enacted by news media, who have dubbed some crimes Jack the Ripper-like. Um, arguably, the application of this killing in the name of Jack has, has elevated the construct. Uh, sorry, excuse me. Arguably, this application of killing in the name of Jack has elevated this construct to the king of all killers. Bedropped by Jack's mythic status and infinite morphability, this element has ensured that the construct of Jack is maintained as being a dominant figure by which all cultural, uh, sorry, by all serial killers are measured and understood. Hence, he has become a constant. Hence, he is relevant. This can lead to a confused and potentially catastrophic hero worship and the most tragic element in killing in the name of Jack, whereby lives are still being violently taken in acts which pay homage to him, a mere complex, discursive construct. However, I vehemently argued that this wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for the level of fear and hatred which is attached to sex workers, along with the utter devaluation of their lives, experiences and death, even when they have been a result of a violent act. Remember, this is a group that Amnesty International defined as being one of the world's most marginalised, vulnerable and stigmatised. A factor which is as prevalent today as it was 129 years ago on these very streets. Jack did not forge his ubiquitous cultural status, his multi-million pound industry, or his immortality. Jack never preached to his converts, nor propagated to his devotees. We did. We have. We created Jack the Ripper. We made him all that he is and all that he represents. We are the ones who buy the books and play Find the Ripper. We are the ones that watch the films. We are the ones that create and attend the tours. We are the ones that research and watch documentaries. We are the ones that buy the newspaper to read how his latest victim has died, whenever or wherever that may have happened. But as his creators, we are also the ones with the power to change and challenge him. Thank you.
Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> Can I just, I don't know if anyone's aware of these. This was um, London Dungeons Valentine's campaign this year. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm at a loss. I don't even know what to say about this. But this is how real women's lives have been reduced, and I'm appalled by it. They, they did actually remember at the time there was such a furore about oh. it. They withdrew it and said, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to offend anyone. <laughs> <laughs> They've got the publicity now. Yeah, absolutely. It's a horror, horrifying thing. Right, ladies and gents, um, we do have some time for questions. We thought that wouldn't be the case, but if you have got them, okay, I see Lindsay there, I see Steve there, I should run over the mics, the wireless ones. <laughs> Hi Charlotte, thank you for your talk. Um, just an idea, I don't whether you're going to look at it as part of your PhD, but something you, you may want to look about this, is that do you sort of look at how other women in history have talked, or at the time talked about the victims and that? Because the language I have they a use little is, bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, primarily, it doesn't fit in entirely. But I'm touching on it. These are things that I can see. I would just mention, if you do en enter that world, is look at Queen Victoria's journal. Okay. Because she actually talks about the victims, and the language she uses is really very sympathetic. Okay. The way she, the actual the words she uses to describe the ladies in Whitechapel being killed, um, and it's interesting. The Queen of England talks about this in her private journal, forgetting public yeah. stuff, private journal. So she was actively following the case herself. Yeah, and yeah. I think it is different because it is very male orientated, yeah, the language absolutely. that has been used over the years, sadly. So it's, we might want to see what yeah, the Queen, that's great. Thank and the you queen so uses much. it. Appreciate that. Stuff. Thank you. I'm going to lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> He's moved. That's Bill. You overshot that. <laughs> right, um, maybe a bit of an expansion. Okay. But could you draw a parallel with the iconic gangsters like Capone and the Craze who only kill other gangsters? I so think it doesn't there are all kinds of things, and I think it's about the kind of relationship and the space that's very rarely looked at between victim and murderer. Um, often these kind of examinations are polarised. But I think it's the space in the middle and why certain victims and why certain murderers are looked at. So I think it's examining that space and it goes up in all directions. I kind of drawn parallels about um, young black gang members. I think there's a real parallel and that's back again yeah. with the gangster thing. And I think it's a lot to do with street trash and visibility of criminality. And that kind of eradication of not wanting to see it, not wanting to acknowledge it, but if someone gets rid of it, it's fine. And I think there's elements of this kind of thing that's to it. So yes, half phobia. But these prejudices kind of interlock, it spreads, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree, there are many, many parallels. Um, I didn't really have a question, but now that I'm here, <laughs> today we were told by the chap that runs the Whitechapel Mission that this year so far he's lost 17 girls who worked on the streets and perhaps there's a serial killer running around Whitechapel again type of thing. But as you say, they don't seem to be worth anything, so it's not worth any newspaper. It's inches. also, yeah, exactly, that's kind of it. We had a serial rapist in my own town, and I only know this because I used to work at the local um, sort of outreach centre with sex workers. A serial rapist that never hit the papers, we were told by the police, don't mention it. And why? <laughs> and oh, why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's the same point, you know, people are losing lives and people are being harmed. Why, why are we so scared to confront this? What are we protecting? I think there's some really big questions that we need to consider. Any more questions? Do raise a hand if so. There's no, the silence in the room. You're a pin drop now. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, this is it. Yeah. Is there a difference in uh, countries where it's legalised? Um, I've not. My PhD doesn't really, my actual research doesn't cover a period from where that would be relevant. So I've not ever really looked at it. I know that my cousin's wife was on the boards that got it legalised in 
New Zealand and what they have is a new set of problems that they're just learning to deal with. For example, so those that work in the legalised industry aren't allowed to be under the age of consent or active drug users. Well, that means that what we're left with is on the street is only underage girls and active drug users, which has created a whole new kind of paradox of wanting to protect the minors, but not really caring much about the drug users. So we've got really interesting narratives going on there, and I don't really think they really know themselves how to deal with this on a more cultural level. I'm not on about the law, I'm on about culture now and how it's interpreted, but it has brought with it a whole new sense of problems. No other questions at all for Charlotte. That's fine by me. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, ladies and gentlemen, I think you will agree a very thought-provoking presentation there. Uh, deeply detailed, a great deal of analysis, a great deal of research, but then again, given your job, I think that's probably a given. <laughs> and it's something for all, all, all to think about. I, I think to an extent, hopefully, that pretty much everybody here would actually agree with, with your findings of people who probably not going around going, yay, Jack, no, <laughs> You'll be surprised what I've heard. <laughs> not oh, here, but... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it, it certainly exists. There's <laughs> yeah. no doubt about that. But hopefully the people here above that, he says, being a tour guide for a living. <laughs> <laughs> but, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for coming down and for giving us such an interesting presentation. Thank you all. Gentlemen, thank Charlotte Mallinson. And that was Charlotte Mallinson, the keynote speaker at the 2017 East End Conference. I'd like to thank Ms. Mallinson for her excellent talk, as well as Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, and Andrew Firth for making this and all of the presentations we are releasing possible. An additional thank you goes out to the Whitechapel Society, an organization who, as you know, has had a continuing partnership with Rippercast in releasing the talks from their bi-monthly guest speakers. So it was fortunate for us in this instance that both the East End Conference and the Whitechapel Society combined for this evening's event. If you would like more information on joining the Whitechapel Society, or purchase books, view their upcoming events, or subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal, visit their website at www.whitechapelsociety.com. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, and Victorian history and crime. I would like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.